At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Uh, several years ago, um, uh, Alicia and I uh, planted a church back in our hometown of Akron, Ohio. It was before God had called us to Michigan. And like uh, anyone who plants a church, we uh, gathered a kind of core team of people to help us kind of launch and start something entirely uh, kind of new in the area that we were uh, living in. And as you can imagine, as we kind of gathered these people, there was a lot of expectation of what could be and the possibility. And, you know, we were starting in some ways with a blank slate, trying to kind of figure out what this whole church thing was going to look like in the area that God had called us to. And as we stepped into that season, one of the things that I did not anticipate in planting a church was the hardship and suffering uh, that would come for much of our core team right away. I would learn later on that, that there's some commonness when you start something new, especially for the Lord, that there's some opposition. But the first three months for our core team when we planted that church were one of the most challenging um, for all of us. And almost to a person, we all experienced in some degree of suffering or pain. Um, for instance, one of the moms on our, on our core team, almost within the month since we were sent out to plant uh, was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and had to begin that journey. Another member of our core team, their parent got cancer and diagnosed with that. We had uh, people who struggled mightily in that season with depression, anxiety. Um, we had another family that was part of a core team who their older adopted son ran away from home and uh, they didn't know where he was. Uh, and then uh, one of the most harrowing was a member of our core team in those three months lost their baby full term in that season. And so you can imagine, I mean, a group of about 25, 30 of us just experiencing what felt like blow after blow. And I remember in that season wrestling a lot, um, just as I was seeking to pastor kind of a, a new community in some ways, uh, how to really think about suffering and how to shepherd people well. You know, if, if you live long enough, at some point, life kicks you in the teeth, right? And if it hasn't yet, then you just haven't lived long enough. Like, at some point, all of us experience the suffering and hardship of life. And oftentimes when that comes, it can kind of send us reeling a little bit in how we think about God, how we understand God, how we understand life and what the nature of this life is. And, and all sorts of those questions kind of get risen to the surface when we kind of face those excruciating challenges that all of us journey uh, through. And unfortunately, I think oftentimes in the Western church context, those things become even more disorienting because we don't really like to talk about suffering. We kind of view suffering as an obstacle that we just kind of got to get over as quick as possible, get through it and just like move on and leave it behind. And so when we're in that season, a lot of times we feel a lot of tension. We, we feel a lot of struggle. We, we don't really know, like, how, how am I supposed to understand this in the journey of really following after Jesus? The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome that he knows has been dealing with suffering. They've dealt with persecution. It's very likely that as he writes the book of Romans to the church in Rome that Jews had been kicked out of the city and just allowed to return. 
We know Christians experienced a lot of opposition from the Roman government throughout their early days and really the first few hundred years of Christianity. Not only that, Paul knows the burden of what people experience and suffer. And he knows that as he calls us to the following of Jesus, that at some point if we're sort of live the sort of life that Jesus wants to live, that there's a tension that arises in how we relate to suffering. Paul actually brings this out in the midst of this chapter that we've been looking through in Romans chapter 8. We've been unpacking this chapter for the last couple weeks. If you're new, you're joining us in a series we've called Unstoppable, and we've been looking at kind of one of the great chapters of Scripture. Paul in Romans unfurls God's incredible plan of salvation, and he kind of builds to Romans 8, where he unpacks for us what it really means to live life in the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. We call this series Unstoppable because it's really the idea of what does it look like for us to live the sort of life God's created us for, empowered by His Spirit. And we've been over the last few weeks unpacking just some incredible truths together about what Paul says. But at the end of the passage we looked at last week, Paul brings up a tension in this life as he kind of unfurls it for us. You can see it actually. Look just back a few verses with me from what I read in in Romans 8. I'm going to look at verse 16. He says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's an incredible reality that Paul unpacks for us. If you're in Jesus this morning, you are a child of God. And as a child, you have an incredible inheritance that God has given to you. But look what Paul says in the next phrase. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, if you're reading this letter, right, you might kind of feel like I feel at this moment. Like, wait, hold on, Paul. You're telling me that part of the reality of being a child of God, being filled with his spirit, being a co-heir with Christ, means that I have to suffer? Like, I'm like, can we skip the suffering part and just get to the glory part? Like, that seems like what I want to get to, right? And so often we feel that. But Paul knows that there's a process in what God is working in our lives in which we will experience suffering. And he knows, even as he unfurls this reality for us, that it naturally raises questions. What do you mean if I'm God's kid that I'm going to experience suffering? Is it really worth it? Like, how am I supposed to think about that? And so in our passage today, Paul wants to kind of, as he raises that tension, kind of begin to unpack for us how we think about the reality of suffering in the journey of following Jesus and living the sort of life that he has for us. Paul is intimately familiar with suffering. He is a man who experienced incredible suffering in his life. Actually, you see some of this in another letter that he wrote, 2 Corinthians. Paul was intimately familiar with emotional suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes these words, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You ever despaired of life? Just thought, like, I want this to be over? Paul felt that. Paul despaired in the midst of some of the hardest moments. You might think, like, what sort of affliction would Paul experience to encounter something like that? You actually, he outlines it for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says this in verse 23. 
I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near deaths. Here's Paul's resume of suffering. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. They said 40 lashes would kill you, so they'd give you 39 so you didn't die. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Kind of sounds like wherever he went he had some danger. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul's a man intimate with suffering. He, he knows what that reality is. He, he's lived it. He's felt the emotional toil. He's felt the physical toil. He knows the questions that come when we suffer. And he knows as he raises the reality of our suffering in the journey of following after Jesus, that it raises questions and tensions for us. But Paul wants us to understand well how suffering relates to the life that we're called to live. And so in verse 18, he begins to outline his response to the tension of suffering. Look what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a pretty harrowing verse, especially if you're in the midst of suffering. And the reason I outline Paul's kind of resume of suffering is I want you to see this doesn't come from a man who's just trying to slap a nice, happy, clappy sticker on the challenges of life. This is a man who is deeply, personally, intimately connected with the reality of suffering in his journey. And yet, as he raises that tension in Romans 8, what he wants to encourage us is to say, I don't consider those things worthy of comparison of what is going to be revealed. Say, how, Paul, can you say that? Well, he's going to unpack that for us in the text this morning. But there's a couple things I want to kind of outline that I think Paul points us towards right from the get-go to kind of help us see what we're going to see this morning. First is what Paul is doing in this passage. So Paul begins by saying, for I consider. The word that he uses, consider, in the, in the Greek is the root word for where we get the word logic in our language. It's the idea of reason. The literal translation would mean to put together with the mind, to connect with our mind. So what Paul is dealing with here and in our passage in his response to suffering is, how do we think about suffering? How are we supposed to understand it? Now, this is tricky, right? Because when we engage suffering, there's both the mental aspect of how we understand suffering, but there's also the emotional aspect, the pain that we feel, the ache that we experience. What Paul's dealing with in these verses is the, the mental side, the reason side. He wants us to have a good understanding of how we think of suffering in the Christian life. One of the things we need to understand, though, is that Paul, Paul engages the kind of mental aspect or understanding of Scripture, that Scripture never actually diminishes our emotions in suffering. The Bible doesn't act like painful things shouldn't be painful. This is why we took six weeks this past summer to go through the book of Lamentations and see the role of lament in the community of God's people. 
that when we suffer, there is an emotional toll, and God invites us to bring those emotions to him. So Paul's not diminishing that, but he wants us, as we follow Jesus, as we step into this life, he's showing us to have a really good understanding of how we are to think about suffering. And what he does is he places suffering in comparison to something much bigger. He wants to put suffering in the context of the larger story of God's redemption. And what he wants us to see through doing that is that our present suffering will give way ultimately to future glory. This is why Paul wants us to say how you understand suffering, how you understand those hard moments of life, is that they ultimately will give way to something greater. And that's why they're not worth comparing with what is ultimately to come. And what Paul wants to do is unpack this idea of why we shouldn't consider our present sufferings to be compared to what is ultimately to come. And he's going to look in this passage at two realities to help us understand that. The first reality is he wants to look at the reality of creation. And then he wants to talk about who we are in light of that reality. So he's going to unpack this in kind of two ways. You see the first way come right away in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In order for us to see that our present sufferings will give way to future glory, Paul first asks us to really consider the reality of creation. And he asks us to consider it in three different ways to help see how it will give way ultimately to future glory. The first thing that he wants us to see is that creation is ultimately waiting for the return of its true rulers. So creation ultimately is in hope that it will come to its full restoration. But the place that Paul begins is by reminding us that creation itself is waiting for the return of its full true rulers. Paul uses this phrase in verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing. That phrase in the original language, it it carries the idea of straining the neck, of looking. Like, have you ever been at a show where you can't quite see what's happening on stage, or you're like waiting for your favorite artist to come back for the encore, and you're like looking to see, are they coming out, are they coming to do, right? That's that's the idea of what Paul's saying. Paul's like, is saying creation's like on its tiptoes waiting for something to be revealed. What is it that they're waiting for? What's it anticipating? The revealing of the sons of God. Now, as Paul uses that language, he's looking back at God's original story of creation and reminding us that God originally intended and created humanity to be his co-rulers over all creation. That when God created the world, he created it good, but he created humanity as the pinnacle of creation to co-rule with God. He tells us to fill the earth and subdue it to be the ones who reign with God over creation, to bring it into its fullness and flourishing. Yet, we turned from that purpose to follow our own way. We sinned against God, and creation fell in that moment along with us. But God began a process of redemption, ultimately that through Christ, God would begin to restore humanity back to its place as his co-rulers. That in Christ, you and I, are to be the ones who will rule over God's new creation. And Paul's saying creation's waiting for that moment to come. It's anticipating something to happen in the future when humanity is put back in its proper place and creation is brought under God's order once 
again. J.R. Tolkien gives a great picture of this in his book, The Lord of the Rings, of what Paul's kind of referencing here. And in the third book, The Return of the King, it tells really the story of the return of the right ruler over the men and women of Middle-earth, right? Middle-earth is thrown into really darkness in many ways and in battle for its life and self, and that's the great journey of the book. But the hope of Middle-earth is that the right king will return, that he will bring restoration, defeat the enemies of Middle-earth, and bring peace and prosperity. And at the end of the story, that's what happens. Sorry to ruin it if you haven't seen it, but they've only been out for like 20 years. So... Right? But that's the story. Like At the pinnacle, the right king, Aragon, is placed on his throne. He defeats the enemy and he brings peace and prosperity to Middle Earth. And Tolkien is drawing on the imagery of Scripture that that's what our creation is waiting for. We feel the tyranny. We feel the suffering. We feel the struggling. What we're waiting for is when the king will come, when he will reestablish humanity as the right rulers over creation to rule under God's reign and to bring flourishing and prosperity. But Paul says that's in process right now, right? That's why he goes on in a second thing for us to consider. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So Paul wants us to recognize that's what creation's hoping for, that there's a future coming that God is working his plan of redemption. But right now, creation's subjected to this word that he uses, futility, Right? And, and uh, Paul's actually drawing on the imagery of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book, there's a key word. We looked at it this past summer. I don't know if you remember it. For those of you that were here, it's the word hevel. It's the idea of smoke or wind. We translate it vanity or meaningless in, the Ecclesia- in Ecclesiastes. In the Greek Old Testament, the word that's used for hevel is the same word Paul uses for futility in this passage. What Paul's bringing to mind is to say there's a season that that creation is in where it's subject to what seems like futility and meaninglessness. We feel that sometimes in suffering. We feel that moment of like, this just all feels pointless. What is this worth? And Paul says that's part of the plan. But look what he says. It was subjected ultimately by God in his purposes and plan, right? We always have to remember, Paul's trying to remember God has a plan For what he's doing here, so it was subjected in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What Paul wants to remember is though, even though it feels meaningless right now, it's not meaningless because what's actually going to come is a moment where creation is freed from that bondage. That although it feels like it moves towards corruption now, and it does, there will be a day when God releases it. It will attain the freedom and glory that we as his children will receive. Paul's pointing towards the future hope of what God has for all of creation, for all the universe. The imagery we get throughout scripture is that God's purpose and plan is to bring about a new heaven and a new earth ultimately through the work of Jesus. And scripture gives us incredible, beautiful pictures of the hope of what is to come. Isaiah says of the new heavens and the new earth that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, that the child will play with the serpent, that there will be such peace among even the animals of creation. Revelation gives us the picture of a world with no death, no tears, no pain, no sickness. This is the hope that's to come. And what Paul says is, yes, creation is in futility now, but it's in hope of what God's ultimately going to bring. 
What we have to remind ourselves is that the world that we live in is not the best world. It's in process of becoming the best world. And that what we experience now is the means by which God has chosen to bring about the fullness of what he wants to do with his creation purposes. There is a hope coming that we hold fast to. And Paul wants to say, when we see that hope, we won't consider that what we experience now is the end. There's something else that's going to be born. And then he gives us this beautiful image, or illustration maybe, of what that feels like or looks like, or is that experience now. Look what he says in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What Paul wants us to understand about the groan of creation is although we feel the pain of that groan, it's like the pain that a woman experiences in birthing a child. And I cannot speak to that pain because I have not experienced it firsthand, so I'm not going to pretend like I have. But any husband that's watched their spouse birth a child has watched that pain from afar. And they have a new respect and dignity for their wives, right men? I mean, for sure. Because there's a pain that comes in bringing a child into this world. I remember when we had our first child, and I was young and dumb. And we were, we were in, the, in the hospital room, and Alicia was, like, hooked up to the machines that were, like, monitoring her contractions, and they were getting more intense and more intense. And, you know, it was like on the monitor, you could see the contraction, like, spike, and then it would, like, come down, and I could, like, watch this kind of thing. And so at one point, I was, like, talking to Alicia, because I don't know why, but I said something like, hey, it's okay, it's peaked, it's coming down, it's coming down. And she looks at me, and she goes it'd be better if you didn't talk right now. It's like, yeah, that's probably true. And then about two minutes later, she looked at me right in the eyes and she goes, you need to go brush your teeth or get a mint because when this gets serious, I can't handle your breath. I was like, so, but I remember, right? Like the, the, the pain, the groan, the reality of what she carried in that moment as she brought our son into the world. But no mother gets to the end of childbirth and thinks like, well, that wasn't worth it. No, when they lay your son or your daughter upon your chest, when you behold that moment that life is birthed out of pain, there's a certain significance and weight to that. And what Paul says, that experience that happens, that's what creation's going through. It might be really painful. It might hurt. You might want to scream in agony. But it's worth it because there's a new life being born. There's a new creation that's coming out of this one. And so Paul wants us to hold on to the pain because he knows the joy of new life is coming. And that's why he says, I don't consider, right? Just like a woman would say, I don't consider that the pain of childbirth was not worth the reality of bringing my child into the world. Paul says, don't consider that the pain of this life is worth comparing to the future that is ultimately going to come. But Paul also knows that if we're to consider that, we can't just consider creation, but we have to consider our own reality as well. And so he turns from creation to recognize we still groan in that reality. Look at verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. So Paul wants us to see that not only is the creation grown in hope for its full restoration, but God's people grown. We groan in hope of our full redemption, that there is a groaning that we experience now, but it is anticipation of the redemption that God is bringing to us. 
And here, Paul, again, he wants to highlight five realities that we experience or are to consider when we face suffering. And I'll go through these quickly. The first thing Paul wants us to see when we face suffering in Christ is that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That the Spirit that God gives to us is a foretaste of the full redemption that we're ultimately going to experience one day. That idea Paul says here of the Spirit being the first fruits, right? First fruits is the first gathering of the harvest. But it's in anticipation of the full harvest that is to come. What Paul says is God has given you his spirit. We've explored this reality over the last few weeks. If you're in Jesus, God gives you himself through the Holy Spirit to come and abide in you. It's an amazing and incredible reality. It changes us literally from the inside out. But what Paul wants to say is that first fruit of the spirit is anticipation of the fuller redemption, the fuller harvest that is ultimately going to come for you. Our inward transformation by the Spirit for Paul is an indication of our future outward transformation that's going to come fully in Christ's return. So we have the first fruits of the Spirit. But in that, because we're in that tension, we groan. We feel the pain. If you've walked through suffering, you've groaned. You've cried in moments where you can't even put words to the pain you feel. And Paul knows that that's the reality that all of us face at times, that we feel that deep brokenness. But what Paul wants to say is that pain points that there's a larger redemption coming. That ultimately the groan inwardly that we feel is anticipation of what we all long for that's coming in Christ. C.S. Lewis famously noted in his work, Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And he unpacks in the problem of pain, the reality that pain shouts to us in the midst of our lives to say there's something better, there's something more, and the fact that you're experiencing that pain now is only because your heart longs for the better world that is to come. When you are freed from sin and sickness and death and disease, the groan you feel is because you know that what we have now isn't right. The good news of the gospel is God has done something about that in Christ, and he is doing something in his return to bring us into the world we were created for. And that's why Paul says, while we groan, we also wait. We groan because we're waiting for the redemption that is to come. What Paul says is we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That ultimately, Paul has unveiled that in Jesus we are adopted into God's family, but there's a fullness to that adoption that's to come when God brings us into his new creation by resurrecting us the same way he resurrected Christ. When we receive new resurrection bodies, that our adoption is certainly sealed. If you are in Christ, we are children of God, but there is a fuller reality of that adoption that is ultimately to come, and we're in the process of that now. Our friends of ours just uh, celebrated the first birthday of their adopted daughter this past week. And, uh, and I, when they had her, or well, when they adopted her a year ago, I remember they brought her home. Um, and, you know, immediately the mom who had her wanted, wanted, the, wanted their daughter to go to, to them. And so they brought her home right away from the hospital and they became her parents and they started living with them and raised them and, and all of that as a child. And then a few months went by and I remember I was having a conversation with my wife and she was like, well, she said, oh yeah, our friends, they're, they're going to court to finalize the adoption. And I was like, huh? 
Like, I thought they already adopted her. Sometimes I'm clueless, so, you know, my wife has to help me out. So I was like, I thought they already adopted her. She said, no, like, that was the beginning of the process, but there was a process they had to do to wait until the court made that final. So that child was still their daughter from the moment they brought her home from the hospital, but there was a process until that adoption was finalized. What Paul says is that's our reality. The moment you trust in Jesus, you're a son or daughter of God. But what you're waiting for is the fullness and final, finalization of that reality when God gives you a new body. That what God has done in you, he's now going to do physically to your body to bring you into his kingdom fully. You might say it this way, what Christ has done spiritually, he will bring to completion physically in our lives. That's the hope that we have. That's why Paul wants to remind us, as you wait, don't forget that you're saved. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. When you trusted in Jesus, you are saved. You are rescued from the dominion of death. You are brought into his kingdom. That is true, and you can hold fast to that. But there is a future aspect of our salvation that is still to come. That's why we have hope. What God has done spiritually, he will do physically. He will end our physical suffering one day. So hold fast to that salvation, but let it remind you that there is a hope still of what God is going to do. And that's why the last reality that Paul ends for us to consider in suffering is that we hope. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says, when we consider the reality of suffering in light of God's eternal plan of redemption, what we see is Man, we have the fruit of the Spirit, right? We might groan, but we wait in anticipation. We recognize our salvation, and that all leads us to the place of hope. And hope is holding fast with confidence the reality of what God is going to bring to bear in his final act of Jesus' return. We hope for what is to come. It's unseen now. That's the nature of hope. But if we have hope, it shapes our lives, right? That's why Paul says, if we have hope, we wait for it with patience. If we have hope, it will influence the way in which we suffer now. It doesn't minimize suffering. Don't hear me say that. It doesn't take away the pain. But it means you'll endure suffering in a different way when you have hope. Because hope, true hope, results and true change of how we live. I was watching this week, I watched an interview with Der Ernest Johnson. He's a running back for the Cleveland Browns. He's going to get the start today against the New England Patriots. And Der Ernest Johnson went to college at the University of South Florida. And when he came out of college, he wasn't drafted into the NFL. He was signed after the draft by the New Orleans Saints several years ago. Um, and uh, he didn't make the team. And so Dernish Johnson ultimately kind of left the Saints, and he actually worked on a fishing, uh, doing a, on a fishing boat in Key West for a while until he finally was able to come to training camp and break in with the Browns. And a few weeks ago, he got his first NFL start, and he ran for over 100 yards and had a touchdown. It was like this incredible moment. And I was watching this interview explaining Dernish Johnson kind of talking about that journey. And basically what he was saying is, I always hoped, I always knew that I wanted to play and to be in the NFL, and so I never stopped working. Even when I was on the fishing boat, I kept working, I kept working. His phrase that he uses all the time is, I embraced the slow grind. I just kept working and I kept working. See, Durnest had hope that he would make the NFL. 
Like, I might hope to make the NFL, but I haven't done any work. That's not hope. That's a wish, right? It's a wish to say, I want to be in the NFL and, and do nothing to move that way. But he had the sort of confidence to say, no, I think this can be a reality. I believe this to be real, and I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I'm going to do what's necessary. And then he got his moment, and it was awesome. What Paul wants to remind us is true hope means we'll live different. It means we'll live different. We'll engage suffering in a different way. If we generally consider suffering to not be worth comparing to the future reality of God's new creation, it doesn't mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean it won't take away the pain. But it means we'll have a sort of endurance, a sort of living that anticipates the hope that is to come. Michael Bird, the Australian New Testament scholar, gives a great picture of hope in his commentary. I just want to read you what he said because it impacted me this week even as I read it. He says this, Hope is not optimism. Rather, hope is the audacity of faith under adversity. Hope is the cheering and triumph for what others deem a lost cause. Hope expiates the misery of life. Hope is currency in the land of melancholy. Hope is the dancing when the music has long ceased. Hope is bread for the soul that is starved. Hope is the voice that whispers to us, all things are possible. Hope is the grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all fears. Hope holds out a light rather than curses the dark. Hope is a physician, is the physician of a terrified soul. Hope is the hero of the weak. Hope is defiance in the face of the tyrant. The gospel is the story of the invasion of hope into a world that knows only despair and doubt. The gospel tells us about men and women doomed for a hopeless end, discovering in Christ Jesus an endless hope. Hope is that shameless confidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that his promises to us are totally trustworthy. And what Paul says is, when we have that sort of hope, it will change the way we walk through suffering. Because the reality of the story that we follow is that we follow a Jesus who suffered mightily and tremendously. That he, being the Son of God, perfect, innocent in every way, endured the reality of a life among sinful human beings. And not only that, was condemned to die at the hands of sinful men, though he didn't deserve it at all. And yet, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross that he saw fit to trust in God's plans and purposes in such a way that in his humanity, he was faithful through his suffering. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the eternal glory that he will receive came not in spite of his sufferings, it came through his sufferings. And if that's the story of our Savior, then we can trust that God will use our story, our suffering, to bring us to the place of glory. That's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, for I consider, no, sorry, for these light momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Your suffering in Jesus is not meaningless. God is using it to produce a glory, a unique glory that you will receive in eternity. That's why you can have hope. Because we have a Savior who modeled it for us. And when we follow his path of suffering, we can know that future glory is in store for each one of us. 
We have hope because our present sufferings will give way to future glory. Not only will they give way to it, they will produce it uniquely for each one of us. That's why Paul says, I don't consider that suffering is worth anything in light of eternity. It's not worth considering the same. I'll close with this. Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in the 30s and 40s in Germany during the rise of the Nazi regime. He was a brilliant man, brilliant theologian who had a significant heart for the church. And when many German theologians at the time fled to America, Bonhoeffer actually came to America in 39, I think it was, but recognizing the need of the church in his home country, decided to return to Germany during World War II. And through that time, he worked tirelessly to support the church. The state church had turned and sided with the Nazis, and Bonhoeffer worked against to rise up a true church. He actually started an underground seminary to train pastors and theologians who could pastor and work for justice and righteousness. Bonhoeffer eventually was arrested because he was part of a plot to try to assassinate Hitler, and he was committed to prison. He endured a lot of suffering, both in his opposition to the Nazi regime and during his time in prison. And many years ago, they collected a book of a lot of his letters that he wrote during that time. But there was one that stood out to me towards the end of a letter that he wrote to a woman that um, he had an affinity for but never got to engage a relationship with. He writes to her at the end of one of his letters. He said, Stifter, another commentary, once said, Pain is a holy angel who shows treasures to men which otherwise remain forever hidden. Through him, men have become greater than through all joys of the world. Bonhoeffer writes, it must be so, and I tell this to myself in my present position over and over again. The pain of longing, which often can be felt even physically, must be there, and we shall not and need not talk it away. But it needs to be overcome every time. And thus, there is an even holier angel than the one of pain. That is the one of joy in God. What Bonhoeffer preached, he also practiced to continue in the midst of suffering, to turn back to God, to find his source for life in that. He continued time and time again to be faithful, even in prison. Even on the last day before he was executed, a doctor saw Bonhoeffer praying in his cell before he was let out to be hung. And the, bon- and the doctor noted this. He was quoted as saying, In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. How does one stay faithful in the midst of such terrible suffering and evil? I think we find the answer in the very last words of Bonhoeffer's life. It's said on the morning that he died that he woke up that morning and delivered his last sermon, his last speech, to whoever would listen. And these were his last words that day. This is the end. For me, is the beginning of life. You see, you can endure suffering when you recognize there's a new beginning coming. That there's a greater world that God is birthing in the midst of the pain of this one. That in the same way Jesus, who endured suffering, was resurrected from the dead, our hope is that we will be raised with him we will experience the eternal glory of new creation. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what darkness you might be facing, 
But my encouragement is hold fast to the hope that God has given us in Christ. Hold fast to the new creation that is coming even in the midst of this pain. And may each one of us at the end of our day say this for me is a new beginning with God in eternity. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are grateful this morning for hope. We're thankful that we don't have an empty hope or an empty faith, that what we actually have is an empty tomb. And that because 2,000 years ago, you walked out from that grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death, that we can have hope that you too will raise us to be like you. God, we groan in the reality of the suffering that we face so often. But I pray for us today that you would help us, like Paul, in the midst of our own suffering, to consider the things that we suffer light, momentary, in light of the weight of eternity. That when we suffer, you would fix our eyes and our minds on the truth of what is to come. That although we would feel the pain, we would not consider it in a way that we would feel like it would be overwhelming to the hope of your promises that will be fulfilled one day in Jesus. Help us to hold fast. Help us to anticipate the new beginning that is to come. Even now as we prepare to just worship and be reminded that you have mercy for us in the midst of our struggle and in the midst of our darkness. Would you elevate our spirits draw our eyes to our suffering Savior and the hope that we have in what he has done on our behalf. Encourage us even now, I pray. We invite your spirit to move as we respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.